Welcome to the podcast version of Robots in Depth, episode 5 with Michael Rubenstein, in cooperation with Vvolver. Robots in Depth is supported by Aptomica. Visit aptomica.com to connect. You will find all past episodes and more on robotsindepth.com. Welcome to Robots in Depth. Today I'm honored to have uh, Mike Rubenstein here and we're going to talk about a lot of in- exciting stuff. Uh, 1024 robots, science papers, uh, papers in Science Magazine. But we're going to start with how he got into robotics. How did you get, how did you notice that you can build this electromagnet, um, make mechanical devices that you could program? Um, I think originally in high school I was interested in electronics. Um, so. You know, one of the natural extensions of that is making things move with electronics. Um, I think I one of the first things I did was I made a rocket that was able to steer itself with with motors. Um, and then when I went into college, I studied electronics as well, and I was part of a solar car racing team. So that's pretty close to a robotic system. So you have you know actuators, sensors, power cells, things like this, and it was really interesting trying to you know optimize the system to get it to compete against other people who do solar racing as well. It was it in a desert environment then, I would presume. Uh, so the so I did this at my undergrad at Purdue, so it's kind of Indiana. It's not really a desert environment, uh, but the some of the races that we do, like the race I did was from Chicago to L.A. Oh, ar- along cool. Route 66, mm, the old cool. Route 66. Uh, so you know racing 2,000 miles on solar power alone. Uh, they do. Uh, there's some big races in um, Austra- Australia mm, where they, it's called sun, huh? the World Solar Challenge. They go across Australia, mm. um, which is a big race as well. And that brings in the whole complexity of doing a system with that kind of durability. I guess yeah. So you're you know you're trying to make a system that's robust to you know going across the country in rain and dust and cold weather and stuff like that. But you also you're optimizing other things that kind of compete against that. So the car needs to be low weight. Like every you know pound of weight that you add to the car, it takes a certain amount of energy to push that down the road. So, you know, but a lightweight car is fragile and breaks easily. So you're kind of trying to weigh these two design choices. Then you went on to to do other things, I guess. Yeah. So uh, I did my PhD at University of Southern California, mm-hmm. um, and I worked with Wayman Shen, and we worked on modular reconfigurable robots, mm-hmm. which are these cool robots mm-hmm. that are. Um, kind of brick-sized robots mm-hmm. or smaller, and they connect to each other, kind of like Legos can connect to each other, mm-hmm. and they um, can move around and change their shape that way. So you have a, a, a robot that's made of you know tens or hundreds or thousands of these little robots that mm-hmm. are attached together, just mm-hmm. like cells in a multicellular creature. Mm, this is my favorite area, I just yeah. love it. It's like uh, you could do whatever you want. It's, uh, it's Lego for grown-ups, sure. it's Lego for engineers. Yeah, um, so I did that. Mm-hmm. Um, and. One of the things I noticed and I worked on my thesis was that the way these things, the way these robots interact with the environment is mainly by their shape. Mm. So uh, you think of any animal, any multicellular animal, and their shape tells you what they can do in the environment. So mm. birds can fly, giraffes can reach tall things. Mm. Um, so shape is one of the most important parts of a reconfigurable robot. So mm. how do, I looked at how do you actually control shape in a reconfigurable robot. Um, you know, the, the idea is that you'd like to say, I want this huge, massive, arbitrary, large number of robots form an exact shape that I tell them to. Give them that shape. You don't want to control every individual robot, say, you go here, you go here, you go here. Mm-hmm. You just want to give them the shape and have them automatically form that shape for you. Yeah, that, when we get there, 
uh, the world is going to look very, very, very different. That's going to be like bringing the transistor into the world or bringing electric power into the world. It's just going to be a game changer we won't believe. But we're quite far from that, sadly, aren't we? Yeah. So um, I guess that leads to the Kilobot project, mm -hmm. which is... So my thesis, I wrote software and simulations where you can draw a shape in the computer and give it to all the simulated robots and they form that shape. Um, and I want to do that with real robots. And since if you're making a shape out of individual like pixels or units, the more you have, the more fidelity of the shape you'll have. So the cleaner the edges will be, yeah, 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 the more precise. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you could always approximate anything with a circle, right? But if yeah. you could approximate it with a thousand circles, it's mm. a better approximation, mm. right? Like audio is done, video, anything digital. So yeah. this is actually a digital matter then in that sense. Yeah. So you know, the idea is extended to the kilobots where we draw a shape in the computer mm. and we gave it to all the robots at once and they form that shape in the environment. Yeah, so it's, it's uh, kind of realizing the idea that we had from the simulation and things that are interesting in modular robots. Um, but obviously, kilobots aren't as capable as even a, like a simple modular robot is because they can't attach to each other. So, you know, they'll form the shape, but you can't reach out and pick up the shape, right? It'll no. fall apart. It's, you just pick up individual robots. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a very important step down this road towards the, the, the things that you both you and I dream of. And a lot of the things that we investigate, like the control and the algorithms and building the robots, can be applied to more complex robots mm. that can form shapes that mm. are more useful, is mm. you know, what we hope. Yeah, but I mean, you, you, you call it the Kilobot Project, and, and, and I know what the Kilobot Project is, but it, but it is actually extremely cool of, of, of you saying, I'm going to build a 1,024, hence Kilobot, mm -hmm. robots. And that, that's just an enormous amount of robots. And there had to be an enormous challenge for you to, to really, really remove everything that was generally yeah. possible to do without. So, so it's, it's like going back to the solar car issue mm -hmm. is you have two designs mm -hmm. that are competing against each other. Mm -hmm. So I want to build a robot that does interesting things. So mm -hmm. I want, you know, if you'd want to have like a laser scanner on it and accelerometers and GPS mm -hmm. and all the things. Um, but I also want to build a thousand of them. So they have to be low cost. So mm -hmm. the, the balance is I want to build capable robots, but I also want to build cheap robots because I want to build a lot of them. Mm -hmm. So figure out what can I get rid of on the sensing and the capabilities of the robots and still have enough capabilities that I can do some of the algorithms I'm interested in. Um, so. And they also have to be very reliable because if, if you have two robots and one of them breaks, you work and you fix it. But if you have a 1,024 of them and 10% of those break, you right. have a huge issue. So, so they have to be durable and robust in, in, in one sense, right? Um, yeah, so they have to be durable, robust in hardware, but you're never going to have a perfect hardware. So even if you build a robot that is really good, you know, one in a thousand will still break. So yeah, you, yeah, yeah. your algorithm, you have to deal with those hardware mm. failures in algorithms as mm. well. So, and uh, then you simply throw away that robot that's dead. That or you just it, mm. you let it carry on, mm. and it just doesn't cause any large-scale damage. No, the shape will still form, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's really cool. And uh, so you then, with this Kilobot, showed that the theoretical framework you developed earlier actually is verifiable, so to speak. Uh, so I, we ended up, you know, the simulation that we wrote originally, that I wrote originally for my thesis, uh, didn't really model some of the errors that we detect in, in so then you real can hardware. Back and update that. Yeah, so we went back and modified the algorithm for shape formation uh, to adapt to this new hardware. So mm -hmm. we couldn't take the algorithm from my original thesis and put it in the hardware. It wouldn't have worked. Mm -hmm. So we had to modify it to 
you know, take into account more errors and different types of errors that the robots have that we didn't expect. So, uh, okay. Which is, you know, one of the important things of building a robot. People mm. always say, why don't you just simulate a thousand robots, right? Mm. So Because you learn a lot of actually building them. Yes, yeah, so, right? so your simulation doesn't test any of the assumptions you make about mm. the simulation. Um, so, you know, my original simulation, I assumed certain things about sensing mm. that in real life didn't actually end up happening on the real robots. Mm. Uh, they say that simulation is doomed to, to success. It, it's, yeah. you know, it, it always works in simulation. Yeah. And then when you bring it into the real world, you learn, you take the next step. Uh, because simulation is an important step. But, yeah. but and we could feed back. So now, yeah. now yeah. we know a lot more about what mm. the robots are capable of, and we could add that to mm. the simulation later on. Yeah. And then the Killabot is now a commercial project. You can go out and buy them if yeah. anybody wants to play with their own set of 1,024 robots. Yeah. They can actually do that, and, and they can do research with them and without having to build the platform, which is a huge undertaking. So I, I know Roderick Gross from uh, mm. Sheffield, mm. I believe. Uh, he bought 900 robots mm. or so. So he has a huge group of, ro a group of robots, and he didn't have to worry about design for the mm. robots as much as you would if you built them yourself. Yeah, I mean, that's So hopefully that's useful for him in the savings. research. Uh, so he's going to be doing valuable research so much earlier than, than he would have if he would have to start from scratch. Uh, that's the hope. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and you seem to be both a theoretical guy and a hardware guy, but most of us are either or. And if you're a, if you're a software guy, building 1,024 robots would just be daunting, I yeah. would believe. So now we have this amazing platform, and that, that's going to lead to so much uh, great stuff. And you then wrote this up, and, 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 and this is a, became a paper in science, right? Yeah. So we, you know, we spent a long time getting the hardware working, making sure all the bugs are worked out of the hardware, and then we started working on the algorithm for shape formation. And you know, I originally tr tried my thesis work, and a lot of things didn't work. So we modified the algorithm until we were able to uh, get the shape formation. And mm -hmm. we thought that was pretty cool, so we you know, made a, this big paper about it. And we, we also spent a lot of time analyzing the, the control for the robots. So we were able to prove that it's guaranteed to form the shapes that we draw in the computer. No, oh, that's so very important. That yeah. th there's no doubt. And the proof, the theoretical proof, mm -hmm. we made a set of assumptions mm -hmm. about what the shape looks like, mm -hmm. how the robots behave. Mm -hmm. And we guaranteed with those assumptions that you'll always form the shape. Mm -hmm. But you can, if you give me a shape that's outside those assumptions, mm -hmm. it's really thin, has a hole in it, things like that, it mm -hmm. wouldn't be able to form. Mm -hmm. And I mean, yeah, I mean, these, the assumptions are probably pretty, pretty basic, like there has to be enough robots there and, and, and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Uh, so we just, in the, at least in the proof, we assume that there's enough robots always to form yeah, the shape. Yeah, yeah, otherwise it'd be pointless, right? So if the, if the algorithm, if there's um, too few robots, it'll form, for, partially form the shape. Ah, if there's okay. too many robots, uh, it'll form the shape, and then one robot runs around the shape, says that the shape is formed, and mm -hmm. it can stop afterwards. And it knows, yeah, so yeah. they know if the shape is complete. Ah, yeah, that's cool. So th it doesn't have to be the exact number of robots. Right. It's, it, whatever it's really hard to do that. Yeah, to yeah, pick the exact number of robots. Yeah, yeah. And my thesis work was a little bit better of a, an algorithm where it uh, forms a shape at a scale proportional to the number of robots. Ah, so okay. it so forms a shape, mm -hmm. and if it's too big for the number of robots, like, it'll shrink the size of the shape until it fits the robots perfectly. Ah, you add okay. more robots, it'll make it bigger. Ah, so okay, it's okay. a little bit nicer. You don't have to worry about the, does the scale of the shape match the ro number of robots perfectly. Like, um, you just get the size you, you, you the number of robots corresponding to. That's really yeah. cool. So I had to when I was doing the work for science, we had uh, a fixed shape scale. Mm -hmm. So I had to kind of guess what is the density of robots per unit area and how big is the shape going to form the table. So I would scale a shape to fit all 1,024 robots in it.
Um, but there's ways of doing that automatically, which are a little bit more advanced, but we kind of did the most basic shape formation that we could initially. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, and coming from Beimin Chen's lab and coming from the connected three-dimensional selfie config, mm -hmm. because in one way you could say that Kilobot is a self-reconfiguring robot, it's a self-reconfiguring shape. Right. Do you see us coming to the 3D world and the connected world anytime soon? Or? I think it's easier to go to the connected world than the 3D world, so okay. you could do a 2D connected robot. Oh, okay. Um, that's relatively simple to do. It, um, you know, depending how hard the connection, want, how mm. strong the connection needs to be, mm. it modifies the robot. But you know, adding a connector to the robot will double the complexity of the robot, mm. double everything about the robot, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not, you know, modular reconfigurable robots are basically built around their connectors mm. and mm. Their, their motors. Uh, so if you add a connector, it's hard to add a connector to a robot after you built it. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's better to add a connector and then build a robot around it. Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly. Uh, but but that's eventually we I guess yeah. where we all want that, to go. That's, yeah, that, I mean this is a test for something, so some futuristic system like this. Yeah, yeah, that's that's just amazing that we are on the road towards that because that's just going to be a huge thing in the world. Yeah. Uh, you've then also developed a uh, educational robot now because you you kind of got into this doing them cheaply because that yeah. makes them available to people. So I mean one thing that about building swarm robots, robots is I've become very good at making really cheap robots. Um, and some of these skills actually work towards making a good education robot. Yeah, because they also have to be... Yeah, yeah. so you don't, you don't want to... I mean, the robot that I built recently cost $10. So for like a couple cups of coffee, you can have a student... Every, robot, every student in the class have a, a robot. Yeah, yeah, and that, that gives... That really gives each their own robot. And right. I, I understand they even participate in assembling the robots. Yeah, it, I mean, it helps them feel ownership to the robot yeah, and, and improves the the learning is mm, what we found mm, ties them emotionally to it and yeah, yeah. yeah they they build the robot they put a sticker on it they can draw on the robot mm. put googly eyes on it mm. things like this and they can also program it make yeah. it do things because it's also what we could call a bristle bot it's also where it also navigates on a flat surface with these vibration motors from cell phones there, yeah I would presume. and you know the main reason that we did that is that cell phone vibrators are much cheaper than mm. a motor with mm. a wheel attached to it yeah yeah and it works the same way right yeah it works it's a little bit slower but when you're you know if you're learning from nothing to being able to like do wall following, line mm. following, the speed of the robot isn't as important it's as the learning process itself. Yeah, it's the learning process and, and making them, instead of costing $50, it's costing $10. And, right. and the, the, that difference is huge in, in the reach we have out to children and allowing them to play with the robot. And, and sometimes children, that there's accidents and the robot breaks, it, it's much better to break a $10 robot than a 50 or a $150 robot. And, you know, the robot is relatively simple, it's, yeah. so it's very robust. Again, uh, it's no, hard no to break shafts, them. No, yeah, yeah no, nothing like that. Uh, you know, you can drop them and mm. they're fine. And you're bringing this project out into to small-scale tests now with 50 or students at one time, right? Yeah, so me and some people in Radhika Nagpal's lab have been working on developing courses that uh, work with these robots. So mm. you have a week-long course mm. for students like, say, fifth to eighth graders, and you give them all a robot and they learn, they start from nothing, and then a week later they'll learn how to use the robot, do interesting things. Mm. So they're, you know, they have the basic ideas how robots work, how to program robots, how to program in general. Yeah. Um, so we started this summer with, uh, there's a company that 
runs summer camps, and we taught uh, 40 students how to use these robots in a, a week-long course for each student. Um, Amazing that that age, how old did you say they were? Uh, so they're fifth to eighth graders, so probably 10 to 13 is my but guess. They, they're, they're, they're incorporated robo robo robotics in the teaching of those. Uh, I mean, we didn't even have computers at that sure. age when, when I went to school, so it's, it's amazing what we've and, and the hope is that this encourages students and gives them, you know, experience in software, how to program, how to, you know, run, use robots, and they're interested in learning science and math and mm. engineering. Breaks and down the barrier. Yeah. Mm. They're going to be really interested in building a better robot. And that's the hope. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, that's, that's really, really cool. And this project is also going to be spread further, I hope, and we're going to see it commercially, you think? So, um, so we're looking at commercially hmm? having someone produce these robots for us because I don't want to build robots. No, I don't want to build no. educational robots after I built a hundred this summer and it was kind of painful. So yeah, yeah building. robots is enough. <laughs> yeah, so hopefully someone will build them for us and we're working on uh, further developing this course. So yeah. hopefully next summer more students will use it. Yeah, really, really cool. And I think that having a, a when it's commercially available, it's not going to be ten dollars anymore because that's I guess the material and, yeah. and basic costs. It's probably double or triple that cost. If yeah, it's but it's available. still a very cheap robot yeah. and very durable. So even if, if, if now you give them to the students, but if you have them in a lab environment where the students come in and use them for a, for a subset of the time, they're going to survive in that environment. Yeah. And I think that that's just that's just great. Huh? Thank you very much for being part of the, the show. And I hope to hear from you soon again. Okay. Just a couple of science papers and we'll <laughs> be right here again uh, talking to you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Sure. I hope you liked this episode of the podcast version of Robots in Depth. This episode is produced together with Vvolver. Vvolver is a platform and community providing engineers informative content that help them innovate. It's how engineers stay cutting edge. Optomica is the founding sponsor for Robots in Depth. Optomica runs anything in modular robotics. Dream, rent, build. Visit optomica.com to connect. I'm your host, Pasha Boy. Until the next episode, thank you for listening.